I'm Alex Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And uh, what was interesting was this um, this article just came out. Amex basically, I guess, a couple of years ago in 2018, um, Amex was fending off antitrust claims tied to a 2018 U.S. Supreme Court ruling. Basically, what Amex was saying is that American Express's anti-steering provisions, which prohibited merchants from offering customers lower fee credit cards, don't violate antitrust laws. The states, which first brought the suit in 2010, failed to prove that both sides of the two-sided market Amex serves, merchants and consumers, were hurt by such anti-steering provisions. Now, dozens of companies have seized since seized on the decision to claim that they deserve similar defense under antitrust. Basically, everyone wants to be a platform. <laughs> I mean, everyone's trying to say they're a two-sided market uh, to get out of these antitrust claims, I guess. Now, Goldman, Barclays Capital, and more than a dozen other top investment banks say they are two-sided markets that serve investors and government-sponsored housing enterprises <laughs> like Fannie Mae. Such a defense was made in a suit that accused the banks of conspiring to rig, to rig mortgage bonds. Uh, Delta Dental, same thing. And now the NCAA. So which of these are actually have a two-sided marketplace dynamic and which of these don't? Well, definitely not the investment banks. I mean, that's a joke. Insurance company? Not really. Um... Health insurance could be a little bit different if you think about um, them connecting providers for health insurance and, uh, and, and patients. There's kind of a dynamic there. And we've seen uh, in, in China, Ping On, the large insurance conglomerate, they also do health insurance, spin out Good Doctor, which is a marketplace for healthcare because they control the money and they have access to the providers and the, and the consumers. You know, that kind of makes sense. The NCAA also kind of between um, teams and players, maybe, um, or, or teams and, and, uh, and teams with their players and fans, maybe, maybe. But Amex is a platform. Amex is in plat. Now everyone's trying to jump on the... I'm a two-sided marketplace bandwagon, which is kind of hilarious. And um, the irony in all of this is that the these companies are saying they're two-sided. Basically, the DOJ has failed to figure out how to stick antitrust claims to platforms which could include two-sided marketplaces. What the DOJ and the FTC continuously get wrong when trying to bring antitrust claims is, you know, Amex is saying it right here. They are saying we're a two-sided marketplace, right? They are saying we have merchants and we have consumers. They serve a two-sided market. Would that mean that a merchant is also a customer? I would say so. They're saying we serve both. 
we are a two-sided market. That doesn't that mean I have two customers? That that linkage is the single point that the DOJ and the FTC and the EU, Ms. Vestager over at the EU, have failed to connect the dots on. What they don't understand is that platforms have two customers. In this case, for Amex, it's merchants and consumers. For Amazon, it's third-party sellers and consumers. For who else is in antitrust scrutiny? Facebook, it's content creators and consumers. All the DOJ, all the FTC, all you need to try and prove when you want to prove antitrust violation is that the customer is at a disadvantage. And you can see here, they're kind of trying to prove that both, you know, they're trying to like do the wraparound to say, oh, well, you disadvantage the merchant and then that in turn harms the consumer. You know, they're trying to do the one, two. All they need to do is one. You're at step one, stop at step one. Don't continue on to step two. All you need to say is the seller on Amazon, the content creator on Facebook, the merchant in Amex is a customer and they are disadvantaged by the monopoly being whether it's Amex, Amazon, Facebook, the list goes on and on and on. That's all you got to prove. And if you can prove that they are unfairly being disadvantaged and that they are um, basically raising prices, that's kind of what the antitrust law looks at is, are you raising prices on the customer and the customer has no choice to do anything? Um, Uber, right? Uber just raises its fees on the drivers and what can the drivers do? Nothing. That's the single biggest gripe of drivers. Um, and many of these kind of gig economy workers is that the platform just raises the rates. Platform is a monopoly. And what are the, they can't, they have no recourse. But now you have these crazy lawmakers in California doing AB5 and causing havoc on the economy. So anyway, the funny thing is, I actually think if the DOJ and FTC understood how to actually do appropriate antitrust regulation or for that matter, appropriate antitrust lawsuits, then no one would want to be labeled a two-sided marketplace. Certainly none of these big monopoly-based companies. Because uh, it's actually, I think, pretty easy to make that case. But everyone's trying to make it too complicated. So they just don't understand the business model. They don't, they're trying to relate it back to the thing that they're familiar with, which is, oh, the consumer is disadvantaged. Every one of these, oh, the consumer is disadvantaged. You don't need to do that. You're trying way too hard. Okay. This was a great article, great site, great content, nfx.com. And basically they have an article here that says what makes data valuable, the truth about data network effects. Here's a spoiler alert. Not much. The amount of true network effect lock-in that comes from data, right? Relative to the network effect and the barrier and the lock-in that you get from having a consumer and a producer, they really do not line up. There are a lot of advantages for data to perfect product features and uh, pricing mechanisms 
So if I'm Waymo, not a platform, I need a lot of data to perfect my algorithms to build a better self-driving uh, piece of software. If uh, I'm a marketplace like Amazon, I need data to understand how to price things or where prices are too high, and then I'm going to make sure that the prices come lower and so on and so forth. And so they've got a little graph here, more users, more data, network effects, more value to users. I mean, it's a lot of smoke. And, and that's essentially what they get at. You know, there are some examples of this where, yes, you know, the data helps you. But is the data be all end all going to um, give you a core transaction? The data is not giving you a core transaction. You need the core transactions. And that's really what's giving you a true two-sided marketplace. We're talking about marketplaces, a true two-sided marketplace um, around data. And um, it's good. I see it more of like a value-added service. Or, you know, I see it more as like a, a better product feature. It, it helps to make the product better. But, um, you know, every, I feel like everyone kind of talks about data, 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 data. Oh, I need the data, 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 data. The data is good. Can you just simply create a business just because you have data? No, you can't. So there's a lot of good things from the data. But if you're like a big traditional business and you think, man, I'm sitting on a gold mine of data. And if I could just get really good at figuring out how to turn this data into gold, it's going to be a really long journey. And I wish you well, but I don't think you're going to strike gold. The data, it's kind of like blockchain, right? Oh, I don't know if I, I don't want to be that mean to data. Okay. I would say data is a step above blockchain. There's a lot of hype around blockchain. Everyone says, oh, blockchain's amazing. Blockchain is a platform. Blockchain's not a platform. Blockchain is a protocol. It is a tool that you can build a platform business around, like international money transfer. But just because you use blockchain in your international money transfer business doesn't mean boom, this thing's going to blow up and everyone's going to use it. No, it's a nice way to have a product feature around a decentralized way to exchange information that's kind of supposed to be very private and secure. Great. But in order for that business to work, you got to go build a bunch of other tools and software and systems around it. Oh, and by the way, you got to go get consumers and producers to actually use this thing in the first place also. It helps. It's an asset. Is it a silver bullet? Is it a gold mine? No, it's not. We've spoken about how, what's another company that's not a platform? Spotify. Um, Spotify is not a platform because they're, uh, they don't have producers. Who are their producers? It's not the millions of artists. It is basically four record labels that are a part of one association, the RIAA. And basically Spotify negotiates, not even with four record labels, it negotiates with one body, the RIAA. And then that is how they've been able to extract so much money out of Spotify and command and basically, you know, rinse Spotify of its margins. If you look, their margins are horrible. Um, and that is because there's no platform dynamic because they have these crazy high royalty and licensing fees for the music. And the record industry has all the leverage on them because the supply is so consolidated. That's why we've seen Spotify try to get network effects, try to 
get fragmented supply. We've seen them try to let artists go direct and have um, Spotify as a label. So now you don't go to the major labels. You just publish directly on Spotify. We've seen that. We've seen them um, try to get uh, um, podcasts going, fragmented supply, and really put a lot of resources into getting podcasts going. And um, now we're seeing a new, uh, a new kind of platform play from them, which is around uh, basically a messaging and a communication platform. So Spotify has already convinced a handful of artists to use this thing called Marquee, which sends notifications to listeners when artists release new songs or albums. Those participating include Justin Bieber and Lil Wayne, gaining wider buy-in for what Spotify calls a two-sided marketplace. Connecting artists and fans is, quote, vital. With Marquee, artists or, or their labels can pay a minimum of $5,000 to have fans notified when a new release arrives on the service. They're trying to figure out, how do I, how do I help connect artists and fans better? Can I let them? I think there's another article here about um, you know, letting them have messaging with fans and these kinds of things. So they're trying to figure this out. But that this is why is because they have platform initiatives, but could they be in plat? No, they can't be in plat because they don't have enough platform revenue to be in plat. I mean, they need they're gonna need a lot of five thousand dollar checks to get enough platform revenue to be in plat. That's a lot of checks. They're doing $6.1 billion in sales, right? The whole thing with Plaid is that you need a material amount of your revenue. The best platforms are, are doing both. They have linear businesses and they have platform businesses. And they've figured out a way for these two things to work together. Apple, Amazon. Uh, you're seeing Zillow do it with Zillow offers, where now Zillow um, is now buying homes and reselling homes. So you're seeing a lot of platforms do this. It's a hybrid of platform and linear. And when you can put the two things together, that usually is the best place to be. Spotify got scale on the linear. How do they do the platform? They're not there yet, but they definitely got to figure that one out. Someone who gets platforms really, really, really well is Google. And um, Google has now allowed Waymo to... Uh, to raise outside capital to the tune of $2.25 billion. And they're expecting to add more investors. And oh man, oh man, I would invest in this thing. I would invest in this thing so fast. Oh, I would put, I would put a lot of money into this thing. Oh boy. Yes, I would. A lot of money into Waymo. I don't even know what the valuation is. I don't even need to know what the valuation is. Just put the money in it. Waymo is going to kill it. I mean, look at this. AutoNation said they put in $50 million. It's not even a high minimum. $2.25 billion raise. These guys put a $50 million check in. That's not that much money. So who put in money? Uh, auto parts supplier Magna International. I bet they're like putting, um, you know, they're supplying parts to Waymo. With, yep, with which Waymo has an assembly deal. U.S. dealership chain AutoNation put in $50 million. I mean, uh, which services and maintains Waymo's vehicles. And then you have the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. Genius job, Canada. And three large investment firms, Silver Lake, Andreessen Horowitz, no surprise. 
and Mubadala Investment. There's a lot of other companies that should be piling into this because what's going to eventually happen with Waymo? What they're going to eventually do, they're going to open up an app marketplace because what Waymo is doing is they're going to all the auto OEMs and they're saying, hey, do you want Waymo? Great. Put Android Automotive into your car. What's Android Automotive? Android operating system for the car or for the truck. What does Google then do? Oh, they do a thing called an app store and they let tech startups make apps for the connected autonomous vehicle. People don't understand how much money is spent on vehicles. Um, it's trillions of dollars each year, not just to buy them. I'm just talking about to maintain them um, for gas, for maintenance, for upgrades, for um, like Airbnb for your car, like Turo and Get Around. It is literally trillions of dollars just in the United States every year. It is a boatload of money. And cars are not used 97% of the time. They're only used 3% of the time. That means they're just sitting around the other 97% of the time. I think the next mega development platform, we've spoken about this before on the show, is going to be the car. It's going to be the connected car uh, with an operating system in it or a truck for that matter. Same, you know, similar situation. But you're going to have a lot of like productivity. You know, you won't necessarily need a driver in the truck at all. In the connected car, in the autonomous car, you can have productivity apps. You can have content apps. You think about all that time that you're in the car that now you can actually do other things. And I think the other cool thing about the car is you're going to be able to have a, a new interaction model with the operating system. So if you think about the past mega development platforms, the internet, and then 10 years later, you had smartphones. We've now gone 10 years without another mega development platform. We've kind of seen AR, VR, and uh, like uh, Google Glass, you know, the Apple Watch, different things like that, try and, and not get there. Uh, maybe some of them will get there. They're just not there yet. You have, you have kind of uh, closed development platforms like with, um, you know, some drones. But in our language, the controlled development platform where you have an operating system, where you have a, um, a user interface to input information and data into the actual machine that is being controlled with the operating system. The car, yeah, it could have a touchscreen, but it's also going to have voice. We're already seeing the role of voice in the car. And I think there's something very beautiful that can happen when you have voice and touch. And when you can put the two together, because if you think about all the other environments that you're in, you're not actually in a fixed structured environment like you are in the vehicle, right? The vehicle, you can know, okay, every vehicle is going to have voice control and some kind of uh, touch screen display. And you can build experiences or very unique experiences for that environment. Very different than you would build an experience for the iPhone or the iPad or your, you know, your tablet where you don't know, I don't know, you're going to have voice there, or if you just have voice, because now I have an Alexa in my home, right? So this is actually thing can bring together both modalities and create really amazing, unique experiences that, that will be very special for the car. I think you're going to see the car led by Waymo, and I think maybe Tesla could be the iPhone version, where Tesla, 
where Tesla is going to really control that hardware software uh, dynamic, where they're going to make sure like that that voice touch screen interaction, man, that thing is amazing. Whereas on Android in the car, you know, different manufacturers are going to have different ways to do the voice and a different touch screen. And, you know, um, the touch screen might be a little bit wonky and the things not, might not sync up exactly perfectly like we saw when Android came out. And every manufacturer is going to try and optimize for that scenario. I mean, that's what we're going towards, right? Because these auto manufacturers have failed to build a competitive development platform pre-autonomy. Um, and they could still do it. They don't have much time left. But they could still do it around just getting access to the vehicle and all the apps and services that go in and out of the vehicle. But we'll see. Either way, someone's going to own the development platform for the car. And I think it's going to be a really great thing for the innovation economy, for startups, for the creation of new tech businesses that can now create software for all these new environments. I'll give you one example. Not only can you build better apps for like productivity or watching content or these kinds of things, but think about the uh, tour bus industry. Consider that thing dead when you have autonomous vehicles here at scale. Why do I need to go on a tour bus when I can go basically into a car or an Uber and then that thing is going to be on a guided tour around New York City, around Gettysburg, or fill in the blank place, and then it can speak to you and say, hey, Alex, look over here to the right, you know. This is the Empire State, whatever. Boom, guided tours in the car, building apps. I think that's like a 10 or $20 billion industry. <laughs> Autonomous vehicles, yeah, an app, boom. Google's not going to make those apps. Tesla's not going to make those tour guide apps, but a bunch of other startups can. So there are so many different things that are going to come into fruition with this mega development platform. That is why... I would I would drain the bank and I would put all my all that money or a lot more money than fifty million dollars into Waymo, especially if I'm an insurance company. I'm an insurance company and I want to sell something called auto insurance. Why aren't you putting money into this? Oh my god, I'll put money into this right away. Really interesting. The Waymo is doing this. The reason why they're saying they're doing this is to give a stronger financial acumen to the to running the business of Waymo. Now you have external investors and now you're going to have more accountability to run the business than if it's just kind of a blank check from Google, which is what it's gotten for a while. Um, so it's an interesting reason as to why to do it. I still think they're saying they're saying Morgan Stanley here um, values the business at one hundred five billion dollars. So if they raise two point two five billion dollars, these guys got two percent of the company. I still think it's smart. Okay, that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you tomorrow.